This episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. All right, hello everybody, and welcome to another episode of Pawn Order. It is episode number seventy-three, and I am here today, Peter Sankoff, your host of Pawn Order, with my co-host today, Camille Lobchuk. How are you, Camille? Hey, Peter, I'm hanging in there. Nice to have you back in the host chair this month. Doing my best. Doing my best. We are ending the polar vortex. It ends today, Camille. I'm I'm holding out. Well, I don't have to hold out for a ray of sunshine because it's always sunny in Edmonton, but I am holding out, Camille. We are reaching the balmy heights of minus 12 today. Ooh. That is positively balmy. Pretty much I am celebrating weather. that I am celebrating by going out in shorts. I'm going to sunbathe. Seriously, it has been three weeks of minus 20 or below every single day. And we hit minus 12 today. And by by middle of this week or end of this week, we'll be up to positive temperatures. I saw a positive <laughs> number. I almost fell over. Wow. You know wow. that moment when you see the first positive number? It's so freaky when you haven't had it for a while. It is like it is it was really something. I looked, I almost fell out of the chair. You can ask uh, my wife. It was like, I looked at it. I'm like two degrees for Sunday. I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. This is unbelievable. Yeah. It's so the it was small very things exciting these days. news. Yeah. It's, it's the small it things is, these It days. is indeed. It is indeed the little things. Yes. So what are your little things, Camille? How have you been doing uh, in my absence? How have you been doing? Oh, well, there's honestly not much to report. I'm hunkered down, hanging out with my rabbit lots. Uh, the, the big thing that we've been focused on in animal justice this past three weeks, month or so, is the Animal Justice Academy, which is going super well. Mm-hmm. have like thousands of people involved, uh, many live sessions, lots of pre-recorded modules. We are currently on the fourth week of it somehow already. And I think everyone's really enjoying themselves and finding uh, their own unique ways to plug in to doing animal advocacy. So that's been pretty cool. And uh, can I say a word about that? It's been hilarious because I keep getting all the Animal Justice Academy emails and I have had problems which are entirely my doing. (laughs) Nothing to do with Animal Justice Academy. I can't get into my account because I deleted the original email. And then when I found it, it had already been reset. So like I keep getting all these notes about people wanting to interact with me who have left me comments. And I'm like, I just can't get in. So uh, (laughs) I feel very badly. So anybody who's listening, who's posted a comment, Kimberly keeps telling me there are comments and I just can't get in. So this is my fault. Uh, I am technologically inept. And uh, what can I say? Okay. So no one should feel bad if you're waiting for a response on Peter. It's not you. It's him. (laughs) Peter, this actually reminds me of the time that... It is definitely me. Well, your your technological issues... (laughs) 
I don't know if I should tell this story. Maybe it's kind of mean, but it reminds me of the time it's, that you had this we've computer. We've talked about this before. Yeah, we have. And you had this computer yeah. that had like an old, old, old operating system. It was a Mac. And I, you, you know, you open it up and you're like, oh my God, that's from like five or six years ago. And I was like, why don't you update your operating system? <laughs> and you basically were like, yeah, I just, I just can't do it. I just, you know, it's not going to happen. So Every you time a new I update, one. it screws everything up. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you, it's a funny thing, right? Because like, because I do, this is what's kind of funny. So, so for my age, because I do all these podcasts and I'm pretty adept at social media. And on top of that, I make all these videos. I'm regarded as technologically pretty savvy as profs go. And the funny thing is, so like I, I can video edit anything just because like that was my training. Like I was trained as a video editor, um, you know, way back in undergrad. So like, I'm really good at video editing and I, I can do all the audio stuff cause I was trained in radio. So I can do all that too, but everything else mystifies me. Like I can't figure out anything. I'm a classic old man. I'm reaching the point where I have to call my kids in to figure out basic social media apps. I swear to God. It's like, Penny, how does this actually work? I have no idea. Like, I don't know what she's doing and I don't really you know I try to keep an eye on it but I have no idea well that's that's funny I, I kind of feel like I'm getting to that age too I'm not that old I'm, I'm I'm gonna be 37 soon but you know at one point I felt like I knew all this stuff and it was super easy and now I'm like oh I've got to call our producer it, it Shannon. goes fast it goes fast Camille it really goes fast like I I mean I joke about my mom who's of a completely different era and really cannot handle technology but like I grew up with technology as did you in the sense of I grew up in a world where computers were available for everyone. So like I was there at the birth of the internet and I was there when all these things are happening. And yet I'm quickly being left behind. Like basic problems with my computer now mystify me. So it's very depressing. Yeah, I feel your pain. Well, funny you should mention getting Penny to explain things to you because I understand you're now in your fourth episode of your side project, podcast with Penny translating criminal law. <laughs> and I understand there's a TikTok component to the podcast. Always a TikTok component. We do an advertisement and a TikTok dance for every episode. Did you see our dance this week? Did you see? Because it, it it signals what's coming up. Our fourth episode is coming out today. Did you see the one that I, I did, uh, Camille, or no? no? There's a little dance with our guest host today. I can tell people now because by the time this episode comes out, it will already translate in criminal law will already be out. But uh, my son, Oscar, makes his debut on the podcast. And trust me, you do not want to miss that. He is as delightful and hilarious as you'd imagine he would be. Not that Penny isn't, but he's just, he brings a new level of delightfulness to the show. Oh, well, I'm going to check it out. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very, very exciting in that. Yeah. yeah. So that is what's been going on with me as usual, podcasts, speeches, all the usual stuff, busy with work. I am attending an animal justice virtual event next week at Osgood Hall. I'm very excited. I'm on a panel of uh, litigators who work in uh, animal related fields. And uh, yeah, I'm very excited to be a part of that. Oh, I assume that's being put on by the Osgood Hall Animal Justice Student Club. It is indeed. I think it's a joint initiative, a very clever joint initiative between the Criminal Law Society and the Animal Justice, because it's obviously combining those two issues. Oh, nice. I always love when they get that cross-pollination going on. It's such joint overlap. Joint ventures are the best. Wow. Well, I actually spoke to a criminal law class um, sometime in January. I forget exactly when, but your friend Nicole O'Byrne at uh, UNB invited me to come speak with uh, a bunch of students there, which was a delight. Really, really keen. And then I went 
going to give a shout out too to a listener of this podcast, Namisha Duvey, who was a former Animal Justice Association student at University of Windsor, and now she's a lawyer. And she's gone on, Peter, to start teaching an undergraduate class in animal law. So it's not at the law school, but it is available to all undergraduates at University of Windsor. And it was great. She's got so many folks enrolled and we had a really good discussion. So I loved it. Fantastic. Great, great, great stuff. Um, I always love courses in any area or field. They always need more learning. I wanted to uh, finish up this part with just a quick, quick shout out um, to my good friend, Javon O'Sullivan, who we mentioned, we've mentioned several times. Uh, she was featured in our holiday spectacular, Camille, not, not our special, our holiday spectacular. Uh-huh. Uh, she received a gift. <laughs> I can, I'm telling you, listeners, trust me, the eye roll is much more powerful when we do it on zoom it's like i in ordinary times i can hear the eye roll but seeing it really brings a whole new dimension what has happened? I wouldn't anyway, want to disappoint you. Um, that's good. I want to uh, shout out um, Javon. Um, as you, you you may recall from our last thing, first of all, she is the uh, founder of the iRoar Podcast Network, of which uh, Paw and Order is a member. You you usually hear her voice at the beginning of each episode with a little dog uh, saying, this is iRoar. Um, but Javon is uh, battling ovarian cancer right now. And we talked about that in the last show. And I wanted to give a shout out because she she really courageously wrote an article about it for the um, Australian Broadcast Corporation, which is the equivalent of the CBC um, in Australia. And it's a really wonderful piece just talking about what ovarian cancer is and how it affects your life and uh, why, why women especially um, need to get checked for ovarian cancer. So I wanted to link to it in the show notes. I think it's really important. And uh, as our, you know, good friend of the podcast I wanted to uh to mention it for Siobhan oh well I haven't read it yet but I look forward to it and sending all the best to Siobhan and all the well wishes for healing absolutely yeah all right well listeners this is your episode reminder to leave us a review of this podcast if you enjoy listening to it we have now over 155 star reviews and we could always use a couple more so whether you just want to click the stars or you want to actually type out a review both of those make a huge difference in terms of helping listeners find this podcast and exposing more people to these ideas so please if you like this podcast check it out and it's it's just a quirk of timing but I'm disappointed that we have no reviews to read during my episode. I noticed there were two in the last episode. And just because of the quirk of timing, there are no new ones. So please remember to get in your reviews two weeks from now, two weeks from now, (laughs) write in a bunch of reviews. Because if you write them in response to this show, then Jessica's going to get to read them all. And that's just going to make me jealous. Oh, so unfair. Your life is so difficult, Peter. (laughs) Well, another way you can support this podcast is by joining us on Patreon, which is a platform for creators where you can provide a monthly amount of funding for your favorite projects. We have a few Patreon prize tiers, which are still somewhat new. At the $5 level, $5 per month, you get a mailed card to say thanks, as always, but you also now get a paw and order sticker, which is super cute. At the $20 level, you get your choice between an official paw and order mug or a t-shirt. And I, I have both, and I've got to say, oh, Peter's got his mug on the screen right now. I have the super-sized mug. <laughs> Ooh, 
This is the like, this is the steroid coffee sized mug that I use every day. I swear to God, I use it every day. Don't we all need a little bit of that these days? <laughs> and we also have t-shirts available for everyone to purchase. So if you're interested, just go to shop.animaljustice.ca. But anyone who supports us at $10 or more per month gets a 15% discount to our online store. Now, in the ap- last episode, Peter, we promised our listeners that we were going to do a draw for one of these t-shirts. And I now have the list of Patreon supporters, just pulled it up out of our Patreon account. And Peter is going to randomly choose a number, which is going to correspond to someone on this list. And that's how we're going to do the draw. So, Peter. And, we- and we've done this before. So in case you think there's any favoritism or cheating, I do not have the list. No, I have the I list. Have gone, I have gone to the internet. I've gone to random. Random.org and plugged in the number of Patreons. And I can tell you, Camille, that the winning number is number 21. Drum roll, please. And that's Suzanne Goodwin. Congratulations, Suzanne. We will be in touch. Hooray, Suzanne. And thank you so much for all your support. Yeah, it's been really amazing to have you and everyone else who supports us on Patreon as part of the show. So, Suzanne, watch for an email from our producer, Shannon Milling. Uh, Shannon Nickerson. Shannon got married and changed her last name. Congratulations, Shannon. And uh, you'll be in touch soon and your t-shirt will be on its way. Cool. Thanks, Suzanne. Now, we've got a busy uh, news segment, as always, Camille, so I'm going to kick it off with one that has been all over the news and certainly all over the animal justice feed. I was, we've been trying to bring attention to this story about a Calgary police officer who was captured on video uh, delivering a pretty stiff kick to a canine unit dog. Super troubling story. And the video first popped up on a local Calgary Instagram page. It's pretty popular. It's Calgary Events. And it appears to show an officer, well, it's identified as an officer, standing sort of um, off a sidewalk, looks like he's in somebody's yard with a German Shepherd-style dog. They are allegedly doing some kind of operation. And uh, you sort of watch the person filming the situation for a minute. And at a certain point, the dog starts to bark, barks a couple times, and then the officer just lifts up his leg and kicks the dog. And, uh, you know, that wasn't just a toe tap. That was, to me, it looked like a more serious kick. So very troubling. What happened next is, of course, the Calgary Police Service is asked about this and they admit that it occurred. Uh, They admit right away that it occurred very recently, just like a day or two after it was uh, before it was posted. And Peter, they didn't try to deny that it happened, but they did minimize the heck out of it. Yeah, they absolutely did. There's so many aspects. I find this story a, a very interesting one and a very revealing one, though I think we would both acknowledge um, on the gravity scale compared to a lot of the horrors we normally get into in this uh, in this uh, show, it is it is on the lower end. I, I think the dog is generally in good shape, but, 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 but that, that, that doesn't, that's not meant to excuse it. That's just to suggest that there are interesting and revealing aspects of how the police force treats the incident, how the police force treats dogs that I think really need to be unpacked and explored. That's what makes it so interesting. Um, I, I wanted to start by the way, with, with the obvious, um, that I'm speaking for myself, but I'm, I can only guess that I'm speaking for Camille when I say that at its core, this case just exemplifies 
justifies why I don't think dogs should be working in the service of police forces ever. Um, that's just one reason. I think everything about dogs working in the police service is problematic from the way in which it inspires terror of dogs um, to the way in which it, it, it encourages dogs to be aggressive in certain situations to the fact that it puts them in harm's way. So perhaps we can start there, Camille. I'm assuming you agree with that statement, but I thought I'd let you unpack it. I do agree with that statement. And I think it's particularly troubling in this case that, you know, the police have decided that they want to use dogs and they want to use them in risky situations where they are put at risk. And, you know, police dogs are hurt and injured and killed every year because of their, quote, service to the police. So like not only have they put this dog in a dangerous situation to start with without the dog consenting to it because the dog has no ability to do so, no, no ability to refuse. But on top of that, there is this incident where the officers caught on camera kicking the dog. And, you know, as someone pointed out on Twitter, and I think it's a fair point, are we really to believe that the only time in this officer's career or in the history of the Calgary Police Service that a dog has ever been kicked, someone just happened to be there standing by to catch it on camera? I don't know. Seems kind of unlikely to me. We don't know. But I, I think that's a fair question. I, I always start from that proposition. I mean, I know you do, too. But I mean, the, the basic idea is the problem. And, and you know, I, I hesitate to use the word joked, but I joked about it to highlight the absurdity on Twitter. And you saw that when I talked about the idea of no problem. Next time the dog will just, you know, go tell his supervisors that he's being mistreated, right? The, the problem with all animal uses is that you put the animal in a position of vulnerability and potential for harm. And this idea that this is a one-off and this never happens, Camille, it's the same nonsense I hear when I'm told by hunters that every kill is clean and that the animals never suffer. I mean, it's just, it's nonsense because every example, when you uncover that these sorts of things happen, you can see that it usually, the, the evidence generally, the, 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 the historical tendency is that all animal uses that cause suffering are generally more worse than they are told to be. And whenever we're able to surveil uh, particular uses, more harm and suffering is uncovered. So like the idea that this is a one-off just strikes me as preposterous. Yeah, it's really hard to, to accept that explanation. And so, so you've got the police service minimizing first the behavior, and according to them, the remedial action which is going to take is additional training. The officer, they say, has accepted responsibility. The dog remains with that officer, and both are considered, quote, fit for duty. I mean, I don't know. Some members of the public might have a question and concern about that officer's fitness for handling dogs in light of this incident, but there is no indication that the police service plans to remove this officer from the canine unit. In fact, they basically have said that they don't have such an implant. So well the lack of the lack of the lack of transparency is my biggest concern, right? And we've 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 talked about that in relation to other police type investigations of animal abuse, where it's essentially it's the police cleansing the police conduct, and they just say, okay, nothing to see here. Let's move on. We've dealt with it internally. There's no big issue. I would just point out, by the way, it's really interesting. Um, and again, let me just st state that this this is this is not. I don't have factual verification of what I'm about to say. It's just a question. Question I'm raising, but a friend of mine posted on Twitter, you may have seen this, Camille, that it's a kind of a curious situation about how, you know, the officer and the animal need to be quiet because they're going to spark something with the, with the, you know, the suspect when like the police tactical vehicle is parked right outside. Like it's, you can see it in the picture. The police tactical vehicle is there. Like the idea that the animal
animal is hidden or a bark is somehow going to disturb is is kind of questionable in itself. Now I say that, Camille, with with full recognition of the fact that I don't have all the facts. But 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 I think it's a valid question is the point I'm raising. And and I don't think we're getting answers on that question because the police are like nothing to see here. That troubles me as much as anything else. Anytime animals are in this position of vulnerability, there has to be more accountability because you are in the privileged position of using this animal. Let's just assume for the moment, Camille, let's just assume, okay? You and I are going to put aside, we're going to put aside all our concerns about animals being used and say, it's okay for animals to be used because that's the only way we can have this conversation, right? Because we've started out with the proposition that it is wrong to use animals in these situations. So let's assume that we think it's okay so long as it's done properly, right? Well, that requires the utmost transparency. It requires the utmost accountability because you are in the privileged position of using these animals and exposing them to harm. Like to me, nothing less than 100% transparency and accountability is good enough. You could draw that principle out and apply it to a whole variety of other situations that we talk about regularly on this podcast, such as industries that use animals. And it doesn't have to be an industrial purpose for the use of an animal. It could be a military or police or law enforcement purpose. The same principle applies, which is that the public deserves transparency if this use is going to occur. And well, it does occur because otherwise there's no way for these you know, agencies to to be overseen. Now, now, speaking of the oversight, two sort of addendums to the situation. So when the story came up, I filed two complaints. The first one is with the Calgary Humane Society. Peter, they, of course, have the ability to investigate and lay charges in cases of illegal animal abuse. I did receive confirmation that officers have been assigned to the case. They commented publicly and said that they're aware of the situation and they've spoken with the police. That's about it so far. I am troubled by the idea that this may not progress to a full-on investigation and that this may be a situation where the police kind of say, well, you know, we've got the situation under control, everything's fine, let's handle it. And I think an external investigation is desperately needed. Now, on that topic, I also filed a complaint with the Alberta uh, Serious Incident Response Team, acronym ACERT, which is the body that investigates the police when they've engaged in serious incidents that the public finds compelling. Now, unfortunately, they said they're not going to accept my complaint and that uh, they don't take complaints from members of the public. They seem to only take complaints from the police service, which I was previously unaware of. So ACERT actually directed me to contact the professional standards branch of Calgary Police Service. So they're saying, if I've got a problem with what Calgary Police is doing, I should complain to Calgary Police. And maybe if Calgary Police decides that this is something they should investigate, then they'll step in. You know, again, that whole structure is just problematic in so many ways. Yeah, absolutely. I I have two more points, like agree 100% with what you're saying. And I have two more points I want to highlight. One is that this, I just want to go back to what you were saying about this, this, this special position that they're in when they use animals. That this idea that, that we can continue to, you know, work behind closed doors and manage our own situation is really troubling to me where animals are concerned. So again, let's just assume for the moment that I accept the paradigm that you can use animals for for work or for whatever else, that people are entitled to do that and it's perfectly fine. At the very least, if I accept that model, I have... 
It has to be recognized that the users of these animals are in positions of trust because they are dealing with vulnerable beings who have no ability to complain and who can't monitor themselves. It's the same reason, Camille, why we do not allow people to just shut the door and say, well, my animal's in here. I'm going to do what I want to my animal. They're not just a piece of property. They are, they are vulnerable beings for whom the owner slash guardian of that being is in a position of trust. And I don't think the police should be exempt from that. In fact, if anything, I think the police should be held to a higher standard. So just on that position of trust, I'm deeply concerned. Second, I think this is a great, great factual example, and you can all go watch the, um, the video. And let me be clear in what I'm about to say that I think, based on what I've just said, there needs to be an investigation of what happened. Right. But I also think what's interesting about this example is that there is a pretty good chance, given our law on animal cruelty, that I don't I don't think this would qualify as criminal animal cruelty. And my reasons for that show some of the deficiencies of our animal cruelty laws. I think two points would be very difficult to prove, assuming this went to a, a, a trial. One, it would be hard to show the suffering. It's just this animal, you would look at the nature of the dogs and you hear all this, you know, stuff about how they're really hardy and really this, that, and the other thing. And proving after the fact that the animal suffered, you know, given its reaction is going to be hard, not impossible, but difficult. And second of all, I can see the police relying on whether or not it was necessary, which as we've talked about on this show is an extremely malleable standard that takes a lot of account of human privilege. So this officer saying, I thought that this was a necessary way to control the animal is going to be, you know, something that would be difficult to prove the contrary beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, what would help in that vein is the fact that they seem to admit that this was incorrect behavior requiring uh, training. But at the end of the day, like to me, it's not an absolute certainty that this would result in a, in a criminal cruelty charge. Well, there's never an absolute certainty, but I, I I agree those are both issues in this case. I think on the first point about whether there was pain, suffering, or injury, pain is one of the things that can qualify as a, you know, pain, suffering, or, or injury are the, are the three prohibitions. You can't cause an animal to experience pain, suffering, or injury under the, that section of the criminal code. So I don't know, Peter, but I think you could pretty easily have an expert who would come and say, yeah, if a dog is kicked in the ribs like that, that would hurt. That would cause some degree of pain. There's there's no like threshold level that's specified in the criminal code. So yeah, I don't think it's insurmountable. I agree with you that necessity might be more of an issue given the way the police have clearly tried to paper their tracks on this one. They're they're making this, this claim that there's some operational need to kick the dog. But again, really challenging when they've admitted that this is outside the training manual and the officer said it was a mistake and not something he should have done. So... Yeah, absolutely. I do think that's right. I think those those things are, are would definitely go to the legitimacy of a complaint. But I, I agree. Look, I'm not saying they couldn't prove it. I'm just saying it's a not it's not a slam dunk case. Yeah. But I mean, again, that's kind of beside the point at the end of the day. It really, to me, the nature of the criminal charge that might or might not be laid is not at the heart of what's important here. It's more about the accountability um, for actions that were, were that were inappropriate, whether they're criminal or not, um, is beside the point of whether uh, the bigger question of whether animals should be subjected to that type of treatment in any circumstance. 
Yeah. Now, there's one more point I, I think is worth making is that we're talking about the abuse of a police animal, a dog used for police purposes. Now, Canada actually amended the criminal code a few years ago to provide enhanced penalties for people who abuse service animals, military animals, police animals while in the line of duty. Now, I suspect that those amendments were primarily intended to target people who might, you know, like kick a dog in the face while running away and being pursued, such as an accused person. But, uh, you know, there's there's no clear reason why that wouldn't also apply to police. Now, again, there might be some problems in applying that based on the facts of this case. But I think the fact remains that, you know, the police were encouraging these new provisions. They were, you know, supportive of, the, of them being passed. And isn't it inconvenient now that they did that, given that they'd like to minimize what occurred in this situation? Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's move on to our next story. All right. So story of the Winnipeg. Um, the Winnipeg Humane Society is calling for the federal government to ban live horse exportation. Now, we've spoken about this issue a lot on the podcast. And uh, what's new in this situation is a video recorded outside the Winnipeg International Airport in the early hours of February 8th. And this video shows a number of crates containing horses on the tarmac waiting to be loaded onto a plane during a cold snap. And my understanding, I don't think it indicates this in the story, Peter, but is that the the temperature was about minus 30 that night. And uh, that certainly raises a lot of concerns. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the... I know what it's like, Camille, from the beginning of this show to talk about uh, that kind of weather. I've been living it myself. And it's like, it is deeply concerning. That said, horses are a little hardier than I am, but minus 30 is minus 30. Um, this is absolutely brutal temperatures. I'm really pleased, although I was unable to access because it's, I believe it's behind a paywall, which I don't subscribe to. Sorry, Winnipeg Free Press. Were you able to get the full story? When I first went to it, it was behind a paywall. So oh, I'm looking I wanted at to read because I- CTV story, which- a CTV. Yeah, I was, I, I originally went to the, Win I was going to say kudos to the Winnipeg Free Press because they did the original, I think, reporting on it and commentary. And I, I, I went to go look at it and couldn't get behind the paywall because fair enough, <laughs> they want to charge and I, I'm not criticizing. I'm just, I'm also not from Winnipeg, so I'm not going to be buying the Winnipeg Free Press. Um, but anyway, the stories uh, are obviously concerning and I, I'm, it's it's the positive to me in this end of the story, Camille, is that this these these events seem to be gaining traction to a movement uh, against this particular practice. It just seems to be getting a lot of steam. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these the stories are coming out every couple days or, or weeks at this point. And I think a big part of that, Peter, is the fact that Canadian singer, songwriter, superstar darling uh, Jan Arden has lent her support behind this cause. And she's actually started her own horseshit campaign to try to encourage the government to stop this trade. So that seems really positive. But, you know, um, we're now seeing just a plethora of voices calling for the end of this practice. And the fact that, you know, it affects far fewer animals than most of the farming industry. Um, you know, apparently air exports to Japan normally carry 90 to 100 horses uh, per plane. And we've exported about 40,000 horses to Japan since 2013. I mean, this isn't the type of industry that's so massive that the federal government can't successfully take it on. So, you know, if you're listening right now and you disagree with this, it is a good time to contact your MP because the time is right to make change. Absolutely. It's never, never too early, Camille, to make change, especially change that involves calling your MP. Camille. It's never too early for that. You know me well. <laughs> <laughs> never too early or late. <laughs> Okay, we have received another story that is of some concern um, that involves, oh my God, Camille, no, no, no. This must be, 
This must be incorrect. Oh, sorry, I'm skipping a story because it just looks like so much fun, Camille. I'm, 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 I'm going out of order, but I couldn't, I couldn't resist talking about our friends, the dairy farmers. They can't. They've been so busy with their brushes, Camille, that they've also, in addition to setting up brushes for every cow that wants one, they're now feeding palm oil to cows. Is that a real story, Camille, or just some made-up thing? Believe it or not, you it's, don't know. It's well, it seems true. Le Journal de Montréal is reporting. It seems backed up. Yeah, yeah. No, Le Journal de Montréal. They they had several farmers confirm to them anonymously. None of them would go on the record for perhaps obvious reasons that they are feeding palm oil to their cows. So holy Jesus, where to begin on this one? <clears throat> I mean, first of all, it's interesting. You or I wouldn't have this context as you know, longtime vegans, but apparently people have been wondering why cow like dairy butter, when they set it out on the kitchen counter for a few hours, it stays firm. It doesn't sort of melt into like a really, really soft block or a pool of liquid. It stays pretty firm. And people have been remarking upon this and chattering about it online. Baristas who make coffee for a living have also been saying that the, the dairy milk that they've been using doesn't foam the way it used to. So there have been suspicions for a while that something is going on. And it seems like the palm oil being fed to cows could explain why that butter is staying hard because of the, you know, saturated fat content of the palm oil and why that milk isn't frothing. 20 to 25% of producers in Quebec are using palm oil. That's and let's just say says. that the, the commentators in this story, well, that's from the, the dairy producers of Quebec. So I should say, Camille, while we are uh, casting aspersions on the dairy farmers at large, that is wrong. Let me retract that and say this is just dairy farmers in Quebec, at least from this story. Um, hey, look, Camille, at least there's nothing wrong with using palm oil. I mean, come on, it might taste funny. What? What? Really? Oh, yeah, they say that in the story, too. What? Is there an ethical issue with palm oil? Oh, my God. Okay. Well, I mean, apart from the obvious health issue, like you're feeding a bunch of saturated fat to cows, we don't really think I don't really think we have any evidence about the, the health effects of this on the cows or humans who consume their products. But on top of that, palm oil, as everybody knows at this point, comes from a bad, bad situation. They're literally slashing and burning forests in Indonesia to produce this stuff and plant more palms. And in some plantations, they're actually enslaving monkeys and forcing them to pick hundreds of coconuts per day for the profit of people who produce palm oil. So I don't know. It's actually... I will say, Camille, I am enjoying in this story to watch the dairy farmers go to war with each other is kind of amusing in its own right. I don't know if you've got that. Here are the comments from, um, well, not a dairy producer, obviously head of a cheese uh, maker, says, um, this is really problematic. We know about all the environmental ravages this product imposes, and we don't want to have any trace of this in our products. So they're, they're talking about not buying these products i kind of enjoy when they go to you know internal warfare with each other yeah i mean that's kind of funny when you talk about environmental ravages uh, like can you think of any other industry that might ravage the environment <laughs> i can't Perhaps think of one the dairy industry which uses cows which are just methane machines oh i don't know no, you're so unfair you're totally unfair you're forgetting about the brush <laughs> the brush camille they the brush animals they've got the brush they care they, they, they nothing but care, Camille, nothing but care. It's care, care, care. Well, that is what they think about. It is fitting in some bizarre, awful way that this is the industry um, using palm oil, which is responsible for horrific environmental devastation and horrible animal cruelty. Uh, you know, let, let's also talk about the orangutans whose habitat is being destroyed when these trees are being cut down. So, 
you know, industry. And we haven't even talked about the uh, where. Oh, sorry. I don't know how closely this links to the coconuts themselves, because I guess that's the, another story we're about to deal with. <laughs> Not quite the same thing. Yeah. We shouldn't. We shouldn't. Uh, we will save that for its own story. In fact, why don't we go to that next, Camille, and then we'll move on to uh, to uh, to the last discussion, because there is an entry interesting uh, discussion that has been going on with our good friend Kendra Coulter about uh, monkeys and uh, how monkeys are used uh, effectively as a form of labor. Yeah, that's right. So um, Kendra was on The Current with Matt Galloway and CBC in the mornings, one of my favorite programs, to speak about this issue of monkeys being used to pick coconuts. And there's some troubling images and information coming out of Indonesia about this. But I love the way Kendra started off the interview. He asked what she thought about what she'd seen in the conditions. And she started by saying, you know, it's disappointing, but it's really not that different from conditions that we've seen in North America when we confine and use animals for human purposes. So she drew links right away back to factory farming here at home. And I loved that because I think it's easy sometimes and just really tempting for people to say, oh, the problem with animal abuse, it's over there. It's in those other countries. It's not here at home. But she made sure that, you know, we linked what those monkeys and are enduring, which is objectively awful to domestic conditions. So like dairy cattle, right? I think she just sort of said generally animals being farmed to confined here. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was going to ask if the monkeys get a brush, but that's a whole other story. Let's keep going with this one. Sorry, I can't resist. I mean, that's all (laughs) about it. It's so ridiculous. I can't help it. Yeah, I know. Okay, sorry. Keep going with Kendra. That's good stuff. I mean, that's about all I have to say about it. Just it was great to hear Kendra speak about this. Kendra's done a lot of work on the labor of animals and ways that we exploit and use them for human purposes and, uh, you know, ways that they might not wish to be taken advantage of. So shout out to her. Which is why, which is why I only use naked coconuts. Do you remember naked coconuts? I can't remember. I can't recall. It is one of our wonderful sponsors who only supports the use of coconut products that are not sourced from monkeys. I remember Camille talking about it at length. I think it filled my ears for many an episode. (laughs) Indeed. That was like a free plug for naked coconuts. All right. Fantastic. Which brings us to our very last story um, of the day. And it's about wolves. And it's about wolves in BC. There is a lot of talk about wolves in BC. Mainly, that talk is all about how many wolves uh, hunters can kill in BC. There are many favorite parts uh, to what is going on in BC right now. Um, One of my favorites was the Minister for Forests, who said in an interview uh, talking about this, and in fairness, she might have just been assigned the portfolio. I'm really not trying to poke fun. Uh, but but it was interesting how she noted she was unaware that there are no limits on trapping wolves in the province. And I'm like, yeah, you really should be aware of that. And there are usually very few limits on catching any animals with unless it relates to sustainability. But for wolves, there are apparently none in British Columbia. And hunters take advantage of that, don't they? Yeah, pretty troubling. And apparently there's only 250 wolves left on Vancouver Island, which I think is where this story is sort of focused. And uh, this whole issue came to light because a woman whose name I'm not going to say because I don't want to give her any publicity, uh, but she promotes herself on social media as I think she's got a bunch of tattoos and she goes hunting. So, okay, fine. And she's posted photos on Instagram showing her holding the bodies of two wolves and stated in that post that she was trapping wolves in response to a problem wolf pack and that she wanted to remove the full pack of wolves. So I guess this caught the attention of the government and it's now saying it's going to change some regulations for trapping wolves. 
Yeah, I look forward to seeing what those are because the story is pretty disturbing. I mean, there's some good parts in the story in the sense that it seems like, you know, the the government in, in BC, the NDP government is sort of aware of the concern and is and seems willing to do something about it, which is kind of a nice change. Um, I look forward to seeing what they're actually going to do. But it's clear that the residents of Vancouver Island, a very large island, by the way, Camille, where there are a whole 250 wolves, by all means, let's kill them all. Like, you know, rather than try to live with them in a sensible way, let's just kill them all. Yeah, no, typical response. And, uh, you know, a lot of this response to, um, you know, attempts by hunters to drive out predators like wolves and other large animals is because they would like to be able to kill more of those animals' prey. So, you know, deers and other animals that might be eaten by wolves. I think the rationale is that if you reduce the wolf population, then they'll have more of those other animals to kill. So you constantly see organizations like Wildlife Federation supporting killing more large predators like that, regardless of how bad that is for the ecosystem. And and regardless of how much the facts actually bear up the underlying assumption. Um, again, I'm not an expert in this area, um, but I have read several accounts that are skeptical of the idea that, you know, the wolves, in fact, now I'm going back, Camille, but really, really going back. But I mean, when I was a youngster, we had to watch Farley Mowat's Never Cry Wolf, which was all about the same argument. This was like 30, 40 years ago that the wolves were decimating the caribou population. And of course, the accounts and the studies showed there was no truth to that whatsoever. The wolves were not in any way responsible. They picked off the the, the old and diseased, and there was just no evidence to suggest they were impacting. So I can't say with any definitive account that there is uh, um, still truth to that idea. But, you know, let's just say I'm skeptical about the idea that the apex predators are are the ones causing the problem. Well, and that's a perfect segue into a second story out of BC about shooting wolves. <laughs> and in this story, actually, uh, you know, so it's interesting that you see the BC government on one hand talking about protections for wolves in Vancouver Island or some other places. But on the other hand, there's still a state-run wolf cull in British Columbia. Uh, I don't believe it happened this year, but the province plans to do it again. And actually, Pacific Wild is suing the government over this. So interesting stories in the Times colonists, because what it seems is that the provincial government is trying to quietly change the legislation in response to that lawsuit. And I guess the lawsuit says that, you know, having like people shoot wolves from helicopters actually conflicts with federal aviation security regulations, because for obvious reasons, we might be concerned about having people fly around in airplanes or aircraft with light, uh, weapons like this. So the uh, Pacific Wild Group actually argues that the call is illegal, and it seems like the government's trying to find some way to bring it into compliance. And uh, we'll, we'll link to this article so you guys can read it. I, I remember a very similar story, though, on different grounds that took place when I lived in New Zealand, because just like helicopter shooting of moving animals, um, to put it mildly, is a very imprecise activity. Let's put it that way. And to the extent that I, let's just assume, again, Camille, we're doing a lot lot of assumptions today. I'm very big on assumptions of things that I think are unprovable, but let us just assume for the moment that hunting is an activity. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to say this because I'm just doing it for comparisons purposes. Can we assume for the next 30 seconds that hunting is an activity that can actually kill animals without pain and suffering? I know, crazy idea, but give me 30 seconds and then we'll All revert right, back to the status quo. 30 seconds. 30 seconds. 
seconds max. Even, even if we assume that, that, that assumption flies out the window in a moving helicopter. It is just, it is not the type of activity that is likely to lead to clean kills. And the New Zealand experience, which I did look at with, it was wild pigs. Anytime you're shooting wild pigs from a moving helicopter, it is very difficult to get the sort of clean kill that hunters espouse for the purposes of maintaining good welfare standards. So I just wanted to point out, we can now end that assumption that even on their own logic, helicopter hunting to me is highly problematic. It increases variables in a way that makes it really difficult. Not to mention, I mean, the animals are always at full throttle run. You're not talking about a clean, a clean, God, I'm doing it again, a shot from a stationary target at an animal that's not moving, which is more likely to get the supposed quick kill shot. You're talking about a wolf that's fleeing for its life from a helicopter. Like it's just ludicrous. So I, I don't see how these types of things can be compliant with welfare standards, even if they're somehow in compliant with aviation standards. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, that's that's one of the big myths about this whole situation is that there's such an idea as a clean kill in most hunting circumstances. And the other big myth is that the reason they're doing this is to protect caribou populations and reduce wolf predation oh, yes. on caribou, which of course, by just say that the reason for caribou declines is because of habitat encroachment by humans. It's not because of wolves. Did you watch Never Cry Wolf growing up? It was mandatory viewing for me in, in elementary school. Did you watch that, Camille? I, I didn't know there was a, a film version of it, actually, but I read the book. Actually, not that many years ago I read it. It's actually, it's 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 a fairly decent film. I remember it being really quite enjoyable. I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, it, I, I say that keeping in mind that you are now talking to like, you know, nine-year-old me because it was a long time ago that I watched that film, but uh, I remember it being delightful and really quite insightful on the impacts of wolves on caribou populations. So, Well, check it out, listeners, and let us know what you think. I recommend it. Recommend it. All right. That leads us to our main topic today. I am very lucky to be speaking with, believe it or not, my PhD student. You've heard him on the show before. His name is Marcelo Rodriguez Ferreri. Ferreri. He is a senior lecturer at uh, the University of Otago. It is Otago. Yeah, it's Otago. Um, and I, I, for a second there, I was like Canterbury. No, it's University of Otago in New Zealand. But right now he is doing a PhD with me on an extremely interesting topic and one that is very important important to animals in the law. So in this interview, I'm going to discuss that with him and, and he'll share with you uh, what his research is all about and why it means something for animals in this world. All right. It is my great pleasure to uh, bring to you for his second time on Paw and Order, uh, Marcelo Rodriguez Ferreri. I almost called him Dr. Marcelo Rodriguez Ferreri, but that would be a little bit premature. Um, <laughs> is there a term for that? Dr. Pro Tem or Dr. Uh, elect? No, I none of those things. Dr. Candidate? I'm not too sure. Dr. Jumping the gun. Yeah. All right. Well, it's my great pleasure. I will call him senior lecturer at the University of Otago, uh, Marcelo Rodriguez Ferreri. It is my pleasure to welcome you back to Pawn Order. It's great to be here, Peter. 
Fantastic. Well, the reason for this particular talk, there are many, many reasons, but uh, we thought it was a good idea to introduce you uh, to our audience and talk about some of the exciting uh, work um, that Dr. Dr. Candidate, <laughs> doctoral candidate uh, Ferrere is uh, putting together. And uh, it is my uh, honor I get to bring him on because uh, I also have the pleasure of supervising him for his, uh, his doctoral uh, candidacy. So I I wanted to bring you on to give you a chance to uh, explain the research that you're doing and what it is you're planning to do with your thesis. So why don't you tell us in sort of broad strokes what the object of your, uh, of your sorry, dissertation, it's not thesis, I'm terrible at that sort of stuff. It is dissertation, correct? No worries, Peter. Um, yeah, so I am looking at animal welfare enforcement, um, and I guess it's probably better phrased animal welfare under enforcement. Um, and I think that listeners to this podcast will be um, well aware about the ideas that um, humane societies and animal welfare enforcement agencies run from government are woefully under-resourced, uh, leading to significant under-enforcement of animal welfare and animal protection legislation, not only just in um, Alberta, not only just in Canada, but throughout the world. Um, but my doctoral research is taking a slightly different tack uh, to what we would normally look at uh, when we look at animal welfare under-enforcement. I'm trying to argue that it's not only a problem for the animals, it really is a significant problem for the animals that really don't have the protection that they deserve, um, but I'm looking at it from a constitutional perspective. My argument is that the way that we resource our animal welfare enforcement authorities uh, is so woefully bad that it actually presents a, a constitutional problem, and that's why not only those of us who care about animals uh, should worry about animal welfare under enforcement but basically anyone in society who cares about the rule of law should care about this issue. Okay, so let's unpack some of those ideas, which is what we spend a lot of doing every uh, second Tuesday. Um, let's talk mm -hmm. about your, your view that there is a constitutional dimension to this problem. Could you explore that in some more detail? Yeah, so we have this idea of the rule of law, which means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But I'll try and argue that one aspect of the rule of law is that the state has um, and governments have an obligation to enforce the law. So we have a lot of law on our books um, and obviously not all of it is enforced all the time, but there's a reasonable expectation that if someone assaults you, for example, that the police uh, will investigate that crime, that alleged crime, they will prosecute someone that they find to have um, committed that crime uh, and then it will work its way through the courts. We don't have that sort of expectation when it comes to animal welfare offending. If someone is neglecting of their cat or dog and it's not really, really serious, we don't expect the police to come around and talk to that person. Um, similarly, sort of animal abuse that isn't horrendous isn't going to be investigated by the police. And in fact, police often will not even investigate any animal welfare offending regardless of how serious it is. We'll often leave it up to SPCA organisations and so forth. Uh, and I say that that's a bit of a problem because it means that the law that we have on the books isn't enforced. And if it isn't being enforced, then its status as law, one that we respect, starts to become jeopardized. And that's the sort of constitutional dimension, the effect that it has on the law on the books and the effect that it has on our system as a, as a result. And what... Um 
what has your, you know, have you, you've, I, t- I am aware, of course, but the audience isn't that you've started your research um, in this area. How, how strongly do you think that proposition can be supported? It's hard because it's coming from a perspective of, uh, that, that, that's one that's not necessarily that popular, which is usually trying to sort of uh, restrain the state from going overboard. Usually when we talk about rule of law issues and constitutional issues, we're trying to uh, constrain power from government. Um, whereas I'm arguing something slightly different, which is that the government and the state ought to use its power in this particular regard. And we expect that it should use its power to enforce the law and specifically animal welfare enforcement legislation. And so that's been a slightly difficult proposition, but it's not an insurmountable one, especially if we start to look at the uh, impact that under enforcement has upon uh, animal victims. Um, So if we sort of broaden our idea about who is a victim uh, and uh, if we include animals within that, uh, then we can see that there is a really good justification for governments taking their enforcement role and their law enforcement role a little bit more seriously than they do. It sounds uh, that when you put it that way, the idea of... um you know, having to approach it from a different angle. It sounds very similar to a lot of animal law type problems where, again, the traditional view of the law is about how decisions affect interest holders or those with interests. And it sounds like it's a very similar problem to all situations in which um, actions are trying to be undertaken on behalf of animals. What you're looking at is whether or not there's an obligation to do certain things to protect these other interest holders. And you point out that in most cases, you know, the affected individuals are those who are likely to be affected by the law itself, not the subject of the law, those those third parties. And it just seems to me that there's uh, a lot potentially to be drawn um, from those other areas where it is equally challenging to raise interests on behalf of animals. 100%. I mean, a lot of animal welfare uh, or animal law scholarship uh, is really just trying to find some sort of hook, some sort of entry point uh, to establish the discourse that's necessary um, to really make this compelling beyond animal law itself. A lot of our work, I think, is trying to to expand it beyond that so that people who care about law generally and people who do legal research and legal reform work generally will, will take notice. Um, so definitely I'll be standing on the shoulders of the, the giants that have come before us in terms of establishing why animal interests matter uh, in the law and why animal interests ought to be sort of elevated to legal interests. Um, and I'll be trying to be using those entry points to sort of broaden it out and say that when we see animal welfare legislation go under-enforced or not enforced at all, that's something that we should all care about and not simply those who, who care about animal interests. All right. Well, without getting <clears throat> as much into the weeds as you and I have gotten, um, I, 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 my guess is that listeners listening to this show are like sitting there going, yeah, the government should have an obligation to enforce those laws. I mean, that's what the problem is. We talk about it here on Paw and Order. Everybody listening thinks the government needs to do more. They have these laws. They should enforce them. Yes, that sounds wonderful. What is the, you know, practically the biggest objection to that idea? And I think, in fairness, that objection extends beyond just the animal context. It's sort of in any situation where you're telling the government that it should enforce its laws. Um, It's a good question. And the simple answer is resource constraints. Can I give an example that 
example I've been using um, in our conversations with you is is jaywalking. So, so jaywalking is an offence um, in Alberta. It's basically if you step off the road in a way that is going to be unsafe and can cause harm to either you or um, the driver. Um, that that's an offence, but it's an offence that really doesn't get prosecuted or enforced much at all. There have been some isolated instances of it happening, but really it's an offence that exists on the books that isn't um, uh, enforced much at all. Now, my objections to under-enforcement of animal welfare law could apply here in the same instance and saying, well, look, is it really law on the books if it's not actually being enforced? Do we really have jaywalking as an offence if no one actually enforces it and no one actually gets prosecuted for it? And the answer might be, well, maybe not, but we wouldn't want all jaywalkers to be uh, prosecuted every single step of the way, so to speak, in every single instance, because that would be an enormous drain on police resources. Uh, It wouldn't really seem to serve much social good. It might prevent people from stepping onto the road. Um, But in terms of actual sort of harm to themselves or others, that's pretty low on the the scale. That's pretty much one of the lowest sort of criminal offences that we could have. And to dedicate that that amount of uh, sort of government resources to it would be a a problem because resources are scarce and governments need to um, do the best that they can with the resources that they have. Uh, And to divert that number of resources to this particular issue would be a problem. Now, of course, I think there's a bit of a difference between, say, jaywalking um, and animal welfare enforcement, because I think that that is actually a little bit more serious uh, than the relative sort of victimless crime of of jaywalking. Um, and so it's a question of degree, but I think that the, the same objection exists, that the government can't enforce all the law it has on the books all the time, constantly, because there simply aren't enough resources to do so. The difficulty, as we are discovering, is trying to figure out how we divide between the jaywalking offenses and the animal cruelty offenses and come up with a principled reason for distinguishing between those two. 100%. That's the, that's the that's the real nugget that I'm trying to work out at the moment. And he's working hard, people. He'll he'll come up with it. I promise. All right, let's <laughs> <laughs> let's let's uh, let's continue on with uh, you know. I don't want to be bogged down in this question forever. It feels like we've been bogged down in it a bit ourselves. So, what is the next aspect of your thesis once you get past the sort of constitutional requirement? You know, assuming you can substantiate that to prosecute. Yeah, let's say that I can say that the state has some sort of obligation to enforce the law on the books. The second part is to trying to prove that they're not. We know probably um, as theorists and listeners to this show certainly know uh, that under enforcement is not just something that has happened uh, by itself. It is a systemic deficiency. And so the second part of my thesis will be looking at how that systemic deficiency has arisen. So for example, in Alberta, um, but a range of provinces in Canada, uh, the animal welfare enforcement obligation is is basically farmed out, is divested to a, um, a a third party, and that third party is usually a humane society. This was big news in Ontario, for example, where the Ontario SPCA for a long time had the obligation of enforcement and investigation of animal welfare offending, um, but it was only after a sort of a series of constitutional challenges that they decided not to. Um, and similarly, we've had sort of other organizations throughout Canada 
who have just decided uh, not to enforce the law. Um, so those organizations are humane societies, SPCA organizations, and so forth. Um, they will do the best that they can with the limited resources they have, but more often than not, they are private charities who get very little government funding. Um, and as a result, we see the law not being enforced by the police, not really being enforced that well uh, by SPCA and humane organizations. Uh, and so there is a systemic problem with the enforcement of animal welfare in, in Canada, in New Zealand, many other Commonwealth countries uh, that shows that uh, when you married it with my first proposition, which is that there, this is a constitutional problem when the law isn't enforced, means that animal welfare enforcement or under enforcement is a constitutional problem. Are you planning to look at the impacts of under enforcement and who it affects and why? It's a good question. I think that would be a really interesting avenue to go down because I think that why are we concerned about this in the first place? Why do we worry about um, under enforcement uh, at all? Why did I start even thinking about this? And ultimately, the answer to that question is that there are a lot of animals um, who are in an extremely vulnerable position uh, that have a lot of harm done to them uh, because the law isn't enforced. More than that, those who commit uh, animal welfare offending um, and those who uh, commit serious animal welfare welfare offending are being let down by the criminal justice system themselves if they aren't getting the sort of intervention that's necessary. And we know that there is a clear link between um, endemic animal welfare offending and later more serious criminal offending against human actors. And so there is a good reason to try and uh, improve our system of animal welfare enforcement, not simply for animals' sake, but for our society's sake and those who are involved in the system itself. Yeah, I was thinking of that. Obviously, that to me is the biggest. And again, I'm not suggesting you should go down this path, but I know you and I have talked about it. And to me, it's a really interesting inquiry. I, I am just personally almost as interested. Um, I realize the key focus here is the animals, but I, I've always been interested in, in the question of what does under-enforcement say about the meaning and role of law in our society, which seems to me to be an interesting question that we've discussed somewhat, you know, interestingly in the context of the COVID-19 guidelines that have been put out um, more in Canada than in New Zealand that, you know, are being enforced to a limited extent. And what does that, what is the impact that that has on people's conception of the law? And to bring that back to animals, that is something I'm interested in uh, because I know you and I have had talks about, you know, what does it tell us about the law as a social force to help evolve attitudes if the law is not enforced? Like how much does that impede the meaning of the law, which is designed to provide some sort of social guidance about how we view uh, animals in a, in a larger sense? Um, I think that's a really interesting angle. And certainly COVID-19 has heightened our ideas about law and the point of government and the point of compliance with the law. There's this major, huge sort of concern about uh, a pandemic raging and trying to suppress a virus. Then it demands that society as a whole complies with uh, public health guidance and restrictions. But how do you affect that? And what happens when people are understandably fatigued with uh, complying with the guidelines? What happens when people en masse just decide that social distancing and staying at home, especially during an Edmonton winter, um, is just not something that they want to do 
uh, for the entire year. Uh, and what does that mean about the law itself? What's the story that says about the the way that the state can enforce these sorts of mechanisms? Um, I, th- I think there are really interesting angles to be investigated there. Yeah, and there's many. And I know that you are also looking at a second issue to, to flow off of the idea that prosecution, you know, starting from the thing that prosecution is essential. I know you're going to look at the public versus private role of prosecutions, uh, the public being government prosecutors and the private being the way it's been done traditionally for quite a long time, which is through the SPCA. That's right. Uh, So the other side of the enforcement coin is instead of just the detection of animal welfare offending, but actually the the taking it through the courts. And there's a really good example that actually kicked all of this research off on me, and that's Lucy the Elephant at uh, Edmonton Zoo. Um, Edmonton Zoo was owned by the city of Edmonton, uh, and there were very, very good arguments to say that Lucy was essentially being neglected uh, by the zoo simply because her environment and the lack of any social interaction means that she was having really serious, um, a a very poor time. Uh, The city of Edmonton, understandably, didn't really want to enforce the law against itself or take a prosecution against itself. Uh, And so there was an organization called uh, Zuchek that attempted to try and take a private prosecution. Now, they failed. The Alberta Court of Appeal said they weren't able to do that. They didn't have standing. Um, But there was a vigorous dissent in the case and more than anything else, a lot of chatter around, well, really, what is the place of these private prosecutions? What happens when the government refuses uh, or isn't willing to take on the role of a prosecutor? Are private organisations the ones that ought to take prosecutions to fill that gap? Or do we instead say, no, that's just an absolute failure on the state and they should have an obligation to do so? Um, But you get into some really thorny issues, really interesting ones. uh, But it's a a historical um, error that we expect when it comes to animals, that private organizations should have the the burden of responsibility to hate these prosecutions. Um, and it's an error that I would be looking um, through research to try and correct. So where do you see, you know, what, what, what I, I'd like to like sort of wrap it up by, by asking, what do you see as the one of the core objectives of your work? Like, what do you see as as as, you know, if you can shed light on all these things, what do you hope to to show through this uh, through this inquiry? I, I'm looking to make a compelling case for reform. Um, I think that the status quo in many jurisdictions is really deficient. And a lot of other people think it's deficient, too. You and I think it's deficient. A lot of animal law school scholars will say that the status quo needs to change. And so far, uh, the scholarship has been about, well, we need to change for the sake of animals because it's simply not doing them justice. And I think that's 100% true. Um, What I'm trying to do, though, is to try and make the case for reform a little bit more broad than it is at the moment and say that you just don't have to do it for the sake of the animals. You have to do it for our sake of our constitutional system and the way that we think of criminal justice. Uh, And I think that would get more people on board with the idea of reform than, uh, than there are 
are currently. And so if you broaden the case for reform, perhaps you make it a little bit more compelling and perhaps you see the change that we all want to see within the system. Um, and all it might require is taking a little broader focus and simply focusing on animals. Always a good idea. Always good to look to uh, other doctrines, other concepts, and the more that we can broaden this, the better. Marcelo, as always, it has been a great pleasure having you here on Paw and Order. I look forward to following your research very, very closely. Thanks for having me on, Peter. Heroes and Zeros. And it's time now for everyone's favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. I am here today. I get to do the hero, which I'm very excited about because I love stories like this, Camille. Don't we love stories like this? We love stories like this. I love stories like this. I, I love them because they combine all the things I love, being good to animals and uh, and uh, young people getting involved to make a difference. And I don't have to make any assumptions. <laughs> Isn't that great? No. <laughs> I don't have to operate in any assumptions. Even as Assuming it's a good idea. No, I don't have to do that because they're assuming it's not a good idea. So even assuming that students have to do dissections, um, they don't have to dissect live animals in this way. This is a great story um, about students in British Columbia, and we're going to name them, Camille, because if you're a hero on this show, you deserve to be named. This is uh, grade nine students from Kelowna's Okanagan Missionary Secondary School Aaron Work, uh, Lexi, apologize, I would think it's Fenning, given my German uh, background, uh, uh, um, Annabelle Lee, Lucia Nutley, and Caitlin Mahoney. They want their school to phase out physical animal dissections and switch over to virtual dissections instead. They have made arguments. They have made uh, a raised uh, awareness in their school. The group is now called Our Voice for Change, and you can see their videos online. Very exciting to see so many people trying to make a positive change to get rid of this idea of dissecting animals and really subjecting animals to further abuse. It's fantastic. I just love seeing young folks getting active like this. And and they, they're they not just targeting their school. They actually want the entire Central Okanagan School District to phase out physical animal dissections. And they've clearly done their research. They point to a statistic that says that 88% of students learn better using alternatives over actual animal dissections. And they're also working with uh, the BCSPCA and especially the Society for Humane Science, which is headed up by our friend Elizabeth Ormandy, Dr. Elizabeth Ormandy, which um, has all kinds of amazing resources to help students make change like this. So hats off to you guys. This is awesome. Hats off. Camille, have they contacted their MP? Because if not, you should tell them to contact their MP. That would solve the issue. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. All right, for every hero, Camille, there is a big, oh, it's a big fat zero this week. I like this one. It's big, it's fat, it's a juicy zero. Oh, Health Canada, why do you break my heart? So Health Canada is- I don't know. Health Canada is currently reviewing licenses for three poisons. So these poisons are um, strychnine, 1080, and oh gosh, what's the other one here? Um and to be clear, it's reviewing the use of these poisons, not for human consumption. It's it's reviewing the use of them for, for poisoning animals. That's literally what the exercise is. Yeah, sorry. So it's strychnine, compound 1080, and cyanide. And they, they are being asked by a number of organizations, including Animal Justice, to ban these 
poisons because they are unacceptably cruel and because they have really horrific consequences for wild animals and the ecosystem. So, you know, they, they produce very slow deaths. They are unpleasant and painful deaths. And animals who are killed by these poisons often get eaten by other animals who might die in the future. So all kinds of folks are asking Health Canada to do this. Now, what Canada, what Health Canada said this week or the other week is that the Pest Management Regulatory Agency won't include consideration of, quote, humaneness in how it assesses these toxins, which is just mind blowing to me. Like the fact that they can't get their heads around the idea that whether it's horrific for an animal to die in this way should have any bearing on their decision. Yeah, it's like, why, why would they, right, Camille? <laughs> I have to. Yeah. Why would they? Why would they? Why? Why bother? I have to laugh and give a shout out to I don't remember this person's name, but on our Instagram, when we shared this post, it unsurprisingly provoked a lot of reaction and people were pretty upset with Health Canada. One person commented, Health Canada should change its name to Death Canada. Exactly. Like, we've got a new poison. And this poison, when you drink it, it closes it. When an animal drinks it, it tastes like candy. So they really want to drink it up. And then they just explode into vile pus. But it doesn't cause any harm to humans. No. It's like, Jesus Christ. It's like anything goes, right? Anything goes, literally. It's just it's so stupid. Like, what's the point of having a review in the first place? Health Canada. Yeah, yeah. Not the health of animals. Good fun, good fun, good fun, good fun, good fun. Anyway, uh, well, that is our, you know, poking at Health Canada quite deservedly, not poking fun at all. It's dead serious, unfortunately, for all these animals that die horrible deaths as a result of uh, the Health Canada sanctioning these wonderful poisons. Yeah, and you know- that's a cheery note to end off on. Oh, sorry. Well, I'm just going to point out one final thing is that one of the biggest users of strychnine in Canada is Alberta, which- guess what? Uses it to poison wolves in another misguided attempt to protect caribou. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Hooray. Hooray. Hooray, Alberta. Well, that on a cheery note, as always, Camille, I am going to, uh, you know, I've got to get my sunbathing gear out because it's going to be minus 12 today. I'm very excited. I, I hope you are getting out and about and doing fun things during the Ontario non-lockdown. So please go to a restaurant, Camille, get out there, help the economy. Oh, unlikely, but but I am going to stay inside and stay safe. And I hope all you listeners do too. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcaster. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Pawn Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com.